it can be easy when we read texts like this week and from last week, it can be easy for our heart's posture to initially rear up in defiance, to initially rear up with a certain amount of uh, self-justification over against what the text seems to be saying. Rather than a softening, a hearing of, of the hardest things in Scripture for us, I want to pray that God would soften our hearts as we hear from His Word this morning and as we ponder these things and what they mean for us, that we'd receive them joyfully. So God, uh, we, we ask for that. We ask that this morning, as Your Word goes out, would you do a work in our hearts that helps us to receive the hard things? Give us faith to believe even when we don't understand, Lord, and give us a perseverance in our faith that we might, on the last day, be seen as those who conquered because you conquered. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, over the last couple of years, our country's been particularly focused on a handful of court cases in ways that it hasn't been for some time. Like, I can only remember, from my childhood into young adulthood, I can only remember a couple of court cases that everyone was kind of talking about, you know, that kind of captured society for, for that time being. And, if, and in fact, really, um, from childhood to young adulthood, I can only remember watching, ever watching one trial where a verdict was announced live. We watched it while I was in high school. It was the O.J. Simpson verdict, right, to date myself. Um, but more recently, we've been tuned into hearings, it seems like, all the time. These last two years, um, some of them right here in Minneapolis that have, for understandable reasons, gained our interest. There's a desire on the part of those who are watching for justice to be done, yes, but to, I think more than that even, I think there's a desire for people to see a justice system at work that can be trusted. Like, that's what people largely want. And my sense talking to people is that's what people want across even the political spectrum, across political ideologies. Um, people want to see a justice system that can be trusted. They want to know that they can trust the justice system that's in place. And so, therefore, how these trials have been presided over has been uniquely the focus of our culture's attention. You may have noticed a few of the many articles written over the last, even the last year, over some of the judges who presided over some recent important trials in the United States. These judges all came under particular scrutiny in the eye of the public because they really represent this promise that the trial will be presided over fairly without a thumb on the scales of justice. This is to say, these judges themselves, they weren't on trial, obviously. They shouldn't be. Nor were they intended to be put in the spotlight of the public eye in such a way that gives them all of the attention or the glory in some respect, but rather, people tuned in with interest to, to see whether or not they gave a fair hearing. There was a question that people had related to these judges. Will they do what is just? Will they do what is just? This is the oath they've taken. And so this is a good and right question to ask of our judges, but it's also the question that Scripture rhetorically asks as it relates to the one who presides over everything, the ultimate judge, the Lord of heaven and earth. We preach through Genesis. So for those of you who are new to us, you get, kind of came in right in Revelation. 
Uh, prior, immediately prior to Revelation, we preached through Genesis for about a year and a half. And if you remember from Genesis 18, because I assume you remember most of my Genesis sermons, um, if you remember, Abraham knew that judgment on the wicked in the city of Sodom was imminent. Okay, the, the Lord said this. He said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. So God's going down, the Lord is going down to Sodom to bring judgment. Like Abraham knows this. He knows that when the Lord gets to Sodom, there will be judgment. He knows that there has been rebellion and wickedness there. So God's going down to bring judgment. But Abraham's nephew, Abraham's concerned because his nephew Lot has been foolishly drawn in by the sinful city. He hasn't been drawn in on mission. Right? I'm not saying moving to the city is wrong. Far for me to say that. He hasn't been drawn in on mission. He hasn't been drawn in with a missionary concern to proclaim the Lord in the city to, pro- to, to call people to repentance in the midst of wickedness, but rather seemingly drawn by elements of the city's wicked culture. I think that's the evidence that we find in the text. Intrigued by the lifestyle of the city to some respect, pitching tents as far as, so- as Sodom, perhaps opening them. First thing he sees before he goes to sleep, sleep, first thing he sees in the morning, last thing he sees at night before he goes to sleep. So he's drawn in. Abraham's very concerned for his nephew, and he asks the Lord whether he will sweep away the righteous, those who, he, who perhaps are innocent, along with the wicked, knowing that while it was certainly a mistake for his nephew to get mixed up in Sodom, to bring his family there, will God really bring a judgment in such a way that would even wipe out him, that would wipe out those who are righteous that would wipe out those with a claim of some kind of innocence? God's answer is twofold. Essentially, he says, no, he will not sweep away the righteous with the wicked, but his answer is also, essentially, nobody is righteous. Or you can go back and listen to Genesis 18 if you want a fuller description of that. But in any event, this is what Abraham declares to the Lord. He says, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Far be it from you to do such a thing. To put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked, far be that from you. And then he asks this rhetorical question that governs the narrative, I argue, in chapters 18 and 19 of Revelation. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? Do you remember this? We were in Pete's backyard for this. Uh, Shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? So Abraham wrestling with the idea of God's judgment, wondering about those who might be deemed righteous, those who didn't participate in this wickedness, those who might find themselves innocent, wondering how God can bring judgment to an entire city, not necessarily knowing the answers to that or how they all work together, declares that it would be far from the Lord the way that he's revealed himself to Abraham. It would be far from the Lord to do something unjust. It would be against his character. The answer to his rhetorical question in the text is an unequivocal yes. The judge of the earth will always do what's just. And what you actually see happening in the text is this picture of God's judgment side by side with a picture of his salvation that he offers. Right? That though actually no one was righteous, no one was innocent, no one was deserving of his mercies, on their own merit, the Lord made a way for Lot and his family to be saved. In fact, Lot would go on to be referred to as righteous Lot 
Not on the basis of the things that he had done, but rather in the Lord's, the Lord's actions of, of snatching him out. The Lord made a way for him to be saved. Salvation by sheer grace. Snatching Lot and his family from certain destruction. That's the picture that we get. And as that picture unfolds, this, these, these, these dual pictures of, of salvation and judgment in, in, in Genesis, what's interesting, and we noted this as we preached through it, is that you actually don't see any firsthand accounts of the judgments of Sodom and Gomorrah in the text. Right? It doesn't give like a firsthand account of somebody suffering that judgment. It just gives a general statement of the Lord destroying them with fire and brimstone. The firsthand accounts, though, are all given to Lot and his family. The focus of the text is salvation in the midst of judgment. And so then when you back up the narrative to Genesis, the narrative of Genesis to an earlier account that really parallels what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah, and we look at the flood account, you see something similar. You see a picture of judgment and salvation side by side. God's righteousness in snatching Noah, who's referred to as righteous, not on the basis of his merit, but on the basis of God's saving action, snatching out Noah and his family from certain destruction by sheer grace once again. Right? And you don't actually see any firsthand accounts of the judgment of the flood. So the experiences of those who are on the ground, there's nothing about that. There's just a general statement that he judged them, that he brought destruction by way of this flood. But the firsthand accounts, the focus instead is all about salvation. It's all about what happens on the ark. Salvation in the midst of judgment. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? And then we move forward from the narrative of Sodom and Gomorrah. Into the Exodus account, we find an even more striking picture of salvation and judgment side by side when the Lord passes over the homes of those, and we'll talk more about it this morning. He passes over the homes of those who have the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. And he brings judgment through the death of the firstborn of homes without the blood of the lamb. Judgment, salvation, side by side. So the reason, why? Why why do we see this throughout the Scriptures? Why do we see this in the Old Testament? The reason for all of this is that we get this strong sense in the Scriptures that just simply cannot be ignored. That if we don't understand what we need saving from, the news of a Savior won't actually be good. In fact, you shouldn't really call Him a Savior at that point. See, if we say, you know, for for the critics of the Scripture that might say, uh, wait, why why all the focus on judgment? Why all the focus on condemnation? Why, do, why doesn't God just completely focus, focus on the sal, salvation part? Well, that, that begs the question, right? Salvation from what? Like, in what sense, then, is it salvation? Like, but when we understand and see the judgment of God and, and the righteousness of God in the midst of that judgment, that He's right to judge, that He's just as a judge, that it is something that, even as the text says this morning, that we so deserve... And the news of salvation, the focus of salvation, the sheer grace and mercy offered in salvation, it's good news to the hearer. It's good news to the hearer. And so here in Revelation 15 and 16, we see something very similar. Essentially, we see three pictures in the text that allows the reader to come to the realization that you can, in fact, trust the justice system that we see on the pages of Scripture, that you can trust the judge who's presiding over these hearings as we read about them in Revelation 15 and 16. And as we wrestle with the judgments of God from the previous chapter, chapter 14, the end of which was among the darkest in all the Scriptures, John is particularly sensitive to the claim that maybe God isn't really a just judge if he really thinks all of this judgment is necessary and appropriate. In other words, you know, we dealt with it last week at the tail end. 
I said that it would come into fuller focus this morning, but John is particularly focused on these chapters, in these chapters on now reinforcing what Abraham proclaimed. In the context of this dark judgment that we saw last week, he's particularly sensitive to speak to those who might, on the basis of what we read last week, come to think that they can't trust the judge of all the earth. So he sets out to make the answer to Abraham's question clear yet again. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? That question governs the narrative of Genesis 18 and 19, and in a lot of ways, because of, the, of, of John's main thrust here, it governs Revelation 15 and 16 as well. So th- he does this with three pictures. A picture of salvation, number one. A picture of judgment, number two. So judgment and salvation, side by side, as we see it in the Old Testament, as we see it heading into the New Testament, just ju- judgment and salvation, side by side, picture of judgment, picture of salvation, and then finally, a picture of God's righteousness in the midst of both. A picture of God's justice and righteousness. So the text starts, let's look there, picture of salvation, verses 1 through 4. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. Remember that, they're the last. For with them the wrath of God is finished. Okay? And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps, with the harps of God in their hands, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, the song, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Okay, so here John sees another sign in heaven. Great and amazing, a new vision. In which he now sees these seven angels with seven plagues. And with these seven angels, he says the wrath of God will be complete. I'm going to have more to say on this in a moment and in weeks ahead. But for now, just take a mental note of this word plagues. It's a big theme this morning. It's a key to understanding what John is talking about in this passage, in these two chapters. What does it echo back to? were plagues. And that goes back to, again, the Exodus accounts, in which we see salvation and judgment side by side, right? So, in fact, words like great and amazing that we see here in verse 1, then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. Those words are used throughout the Old Testament to describe God's saving work on behalf of his people. And it's particularly used, it has a particular emphasis in the Old Testament describing his saving work at the Exodus. God rescuing his people out of Egypt. We'll see those words again in verse 3, right? Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord Almighty. In other words, this is a picture of salvation. But, but we might say, okay, time out, wait, wait a minute. How is a vision of seven angels with seven plagues, the last of the angels, right? Because they're the ones who are bringing the last of these judgments, the final judgments upon mankind. How can we possibly categorize these angels who are about to pour out God's wrath as a picture of salvation. Well, look at the Exodus. Okay? That's John's answer. Like, 
God's people were being enslaved. They were being persecuted. They were being misled. They were being mistreated. They were being deceived. They were being killed. They were being murdered. And so God uses plagues to free His people. He uses judgment to, to save out a new humanity from an unrepentant people. He's saving them. And that's now that comes clearer into focus because we see these words immediately following, uh, okay, this picture of, of these angels who are preparing to pour out these bowls of wrath. We see this picture of salvation in which there's the sea of glass in the text. Okay, if you remember, so Ben Reese preached on chapter 4, and we talked a little bit about this. He talked about how this, this sea of glass represents this chasm between God and man. The sea, again, we talk a lot about this, right? But the sea representing chaos, right? Evil. God can have nothing to do with evil. So this is a picture of our sin separating us from God. But the stakes are raised a bit when John gets to the imagery of chapter 15 because the sea of glass is suddenly mingled with fire. It's, it's like, you know, because the sea of glass, that doesn't sound intimidating maybe. Listen. It's like this picture of this gulf of mankind uh, between mankind and God that C.S. Lewis describes in his book, The Great Divorce. I'm not sure if you've ever read it. But um, in The Great Divorce, you see that there's this endless field of grass between those who don't believe in God's kingdom, essentially. And especially during this time of year, and I hate to do this to you, Minnesotans, when you think of green grass... How do you imagine it feeling? You know, I'm sorry, guys, but how do you imagine it feeling? It feels soft. It feels, it's got the warmth of the sun. I remember, remember visiting Arizona in early February once. So we flew out of Minneapolis in early February, and we landed in Phoenix and got to our destination. And one of the first things I saw, I mean, one of the first things I did, I saw this uh, patch of grass, and I told Amy, I'm going to take my shoes off. I'm going to go stand in that grass. That's what I did. Uh, how does it feel? It feels ple- You squish your toes in it. It feels pleasant, right? A reminder of summer. But in Lewis's depiction, when anyone attempted to walk on this green grass, it would cut like blades on their feet. It was hard and sharp. And the longer you went, the more painful it would get. It was insurmountable. Something similar is in play here. Tom Schreiner comments this way. He says, approaching God is like walking on a beautiful sea of glass, but the sea burns with fire. Hard, painful, insurmountable, chaos, evil, separation. That's the idea. And yet the saints, those who conquered, those who are not marked with the beast, but rather those who have God's mark, because everybody has a mark, they faced the wrath of Antichrist, Right? They've, they faced the wrath of Antichrist. They did not get Antichrist's acceptance. They did not get the world's acceptance. They faced the wrath of the surrounding world. But here they are in front of God, standing without harm beside the sea of glass. Although that preposition beside in the text can also be translated upon. I think that might be right. So, in other words, it's a way of the author saying that they're not separated from God. They actually have fellowship with Him. The chasm is not a chasm for them. They're able to be in His presence. They've been given deliverance and salvation. Uh, And harps commonly signify that kind of deliverance and salvation as His people now praise His name. And what do they sing as they praise Him? They sing the song of Moses. What does that point us back to? The Exodus, right? Plagues, the song of Moses, right? 
They sing, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord. So great and amazing, words that throughout the Old Testament point us back to the Exodus 2, you know. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord. God, the Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. So here they sing a song of salvation and deliverance. Sing a song of the redeemed. The only ones who are able to sing this song are the people of God. We saw that in our text last week. And as a part of this song, we get a glimpse of where John is going now as they proclaim that God is just. He's just, great and amazing. O Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways. So what you are about to read about, John is saying, the people of God are singing, is God acting in a way that's true to his nature. God acting in a way that's just and true. Well, what are we about to read about in the text? Well, we've seen a picture of salvation. Brings us to the second picture now. That picture of salvation is side by side now with a picture of judgment. Look, look at me. Look with me at verses 5 through 8. But um, this is really going to, this picture of judgment is really going to extend all the way to the end of 16 in some ways too, okay? Kind of um, mesh with the third picture, but okay. 5 through 8. After this I looked. And the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the, seventh angel, uh, came the seven angels with the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God, from His power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So this picture of judgment begins like with this picture of the holiness of God. The righteousness of God, right? So remember that. But but it also begins with the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven opening. And what's the sanctuary of the tent of witness? Well, this is kind of John's theological shorthand. For the dwelling place of God. This is the dwelling place of God. But listen, when this dwelling place of God opens, it signals the end. It signals that the kingdom is coming, yes, but it signals that because the kingdom is coming, finally, because the kingdom is dawning, His judgment is coming. The kingdom comes, His judgment comes. And here are the plagues that are poured out by way of God's wrath. So if you remember, like, so we've had, had seven seals. Before we get there, we've had seven seals. These seal judgments where the scroll was opened, right? Um, seven trumpets blown, where we've seen seven trumpet judgments. And now we see these seven bowls poured out. And there are a lot of ways, we, we've talked about it, right? But there are a lot of ways that people have resolved to kind of structure the seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. All of them, them can probably be simplified to a certain extent in two main positions. One is that in some sense, these are chronological. The seals happen first, followed by the trumpets, followed by the bulls, right? Uh, Another is suggesting that these are all just repeating the same judgments, that all these judgments happen between the advents, between the first coming and the second coming of Christ throughout human history, and that they're just repeating the same judgments, right? They're they're a description of the same thing that's been said. It's just kind of a retelling of the same story throughout the book. Um, And I think in the end, as I've said before, but now we see it even more clearly this morning, because finally we see all seven bowls poured out. 
Neither of those structures are completely accurate. Both of those structures have elements that are accurate. So neither are accurate, but both are pretty accurate. In other words, um, when we just let the text speak for itself, when we, avoid, when we avoid or fight, I should say, the temptation to allow some outside structure to, to uh, be read into the text, to, to be imposed into the text, which I think everybody does, to a certain extent, like I scratch my head at various positions in Revelation when they say, oh, this is what... This is what this means. Here's the interpretation of this. And I think, where on earth did we get that in the text? And it's like, oh, we got it from our outside structure that we impose on the text. When we fight that tendency, here's what we see, I think. Of course, we see parallelism. That is to say, we see a lot of the same things repeated, a lot of the same story repeated. I would argue that the sixth seal and the seventh trumpet and the seventh bowl are all referring to the same event. Apocalyptic literature for the same event. They're referring to the eschaton, the end. And in addition, in all three, the seals, the trumpets, the bulls, we see judgments that mirror the plagues. I mean, almost in its entirety, we see these judgments that mirror one another, the same judgments. And John actually here specifically, almost as if to say, in case you're missing what I'm pointing back to and referencing here, in case you think I'm like uh, speaking in a way that's not symbolic, and that, that's disconnected from, from a past event, let me be really clear what I'm talking about. Plagues. Plagues. Right? John actually refers to them as that. So this connection back to the Exodus is so obvious. The parallelism is so obvious. So John's talking about the same judgments in some sense repeatedly. At the same time, there's also pretty obviously some progression here. There is some progression. I don't know how to deny that. We go from one-fourth of everything being destroyed in the seals to one-third of everything being destroyed in the trumpets, and now everything being destroyed in the bowls. Everything is. And I think that progression, so I, I think it's pretty obvious that we have some kind of progression, and I think it makes it pretty difficult to argue, as some do, and we're going to talk about this position when we get to 19 and 20. But I think it gets pretty tough to argue that the kingdom of God will be ushered in by the church as the church proclaims the gospel and, and the gospel advances and people believe and things and culture just get better and better until finally the kingdom comes. That view on Revelation, I think, fails us here because I think we're seeing things escalate toward the end. Like there's a theme in Revelation that the persecution is escalating, that it's bad now, but it's about to get worse. There's a theme in Revelation that the judgment is escalating. One-fourth, one-third, all of it. There's an escalation here that gets worse and worse and worse all the way to the end. And I also think it's difficult to conclude that these bold judgments represent the entire period between Christ's resurrection and His second coming. The way that I would argue the Great Tribulation absolutely does. I think we're seeing something uniquely future that's poured out in the end. I think we're seeing a progression of judgment upon judgment upon judgment up to the point at the very end in which we have a final judgment. And that's what we read here. A final judgment in the end. And yet the, the judgment that we see poured out through chapter 16, listen, it's not meant to be a transcript. This is meant to be like read as a transcript of what exactly is going to happen and this is what it's going to look like. In other words, here we continue to see symbolism in apocalyptic literature. We're not meant to read each one of these like seals and trumpets and bowls and say, ah, see, like when darkness comes upon the earth, therefore when there's a solar eclipse, it's meant it's going to launch us into darkness and we'll know that we're in the seals or therefore when these things happen we'll know that you know 
Uh, it's not meant to be read this way. This is apocalyptic literature, right? And this is meant to point us back to the plagues of Egypt in which God rescued His people. God is again, in other words, going to rescue His people. He's again going to bring judgment upon those who stand against Him coming to make all things new. But as I said last week, just because this is symbolic imagery for judgment, and it is, I think, symbolic imagery for judgment, it doesn't mean that the future coming judgment isn't real. Or that it's not coming. That it's not imminent. In fact, I think it's far worse than what the symbolism... Symbolism is doing its best to show us what God's judgment will be like symbolically. I think it's far worse than we can imagine. And so we see in verse 2, what are these judgments? Well, sores on those who worship the beast. This is the first bull. Verse 3, seas turn to blood. You start to see, if you're familiar at all with the Exodus account, and with the plagues in the Exodus, listen to these, these um, bowls, okay? Then in verses 4-7, through seven, the rivers and the springs turn to blood. People are scorched by the sun, verses 8 and 9. The kingdom of this world is thrown into darkness, verses 10 and 11. So that's the fifth, fifth uh, bowl. The final battle against the beast is described, verses 12-16. through 16. We'll say more about that when we get to chapters 19 and 20. Okay, and then finally, God's kingdom comes as the final bowl is poured out in 17 to 21. This is a signal that it's over. It is finished. We're at the end. Okay, so we see this picture of salvation and this picture of judgment. Side by side, both pictures draw our minds back to the Exodus where God did what? Where he brought judgment in order to save. Where God conquered so that his people could conquer through him alone, throwing themselves on his mercies where God was able to restore and rescue a new humanity out of this broken world by way of judgment. But the final picture that John paints in both chapters 15 and 16, and what appears to be the shape of how he describes both that salvation and that judgment, actually targets those who might be inclined to now question whether or not that judgment is really warranted or necessary. We might read this and think, oh man, does the crime really fit the punishment? Is God really just? John is sensitive to those kinds of questions in this text. And so it's here that John gives us a picture of God's righteousness, His justice, in the midst of both salvation and judgment. So in addition to the, vo- so the voice of the saints that are in this picture of salvation, what are they proclaiming? Before we even get to the judgment bit, what are, what are they proclaiming? They're proclaiming that God is just right? And then, even before the angels appear with these golden bowls, right, we see this sanctuary in heaven that's open, God's dwelling place. And what does that section talk to us about? God's glory and His righteousness and justice. So before we even get here, we see all of that, but now, in this, throughout chapter 16, we essentially see three reasons that John gives that the Lord must pour out Judgment, because John now pauses at various moments as the bulls are being poured out to highlight God's righteousness in the midst of judgment, to answer some of these criticisms. Three reasons for his righteousness and judgment. Look with me at verses 4 through 6. As the third bowl is poured out, this is the first time that John kind of stops and uh, gives reasons. So verses 4 through 5. The third angel poured out his bowl onto the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, 
O Holy One, who is and was, for you brought these judgments. So John pauses at first and he says, okay, just are you, O Holy One. And then he tells us why he's just. So John's answer isn't just to say like, no, trust me, God is just. He tells us why. Why is God just according to John? For, anytime we see the word for, it's giving a reason. For you brought these judgments. So grammatically, anytime you see for in the scriptures, it can also be read as like a reverse therefore. All right, that's kind of, that's the logic behind it. So let me tell you what I mean. In other words, um, the same logic could read this way. It could read, you brought these judgments, therefore, just you are, O Holy One. The bringing of these judgments themselves is an act of justice. Why? Well, you know, we introduced this idea at the tail end of our chapter last week. I indicated we'd see it spell out more clearly for us this week. But a good and just judge will bring recompense. He will bring judgment on the guilty and the wicked because the guilt of their wickedness have left victims in their wake. John actually says that. We'll get to it in a moment. But they've left victims in their wake. The court cases in which the defendants were clearly guilty of murder, found guilty in the proceedings... The judge is just to sentence them to judgment. Jesus speaks this way about justice. He says it's better for those who would harm a child to have a millstone tied around their neck. This is Jesus. And have them thrown into the sea. To have them have their skulls dashed upon the rocks than to, to bring harm to the little ones. To the children of, of the world, right? So those who are, who, who are leaving victims in their wake, it is absolutely just for the judge to bring justice judgment. And in fact, not only so, but in these cases, it would be seen as unjust if the judge said, yes, you're found guilty of of those things. You're found guilty of harming children. You're found guilty of leaving victims. You're found guilty of murder. But I hereby let you go with no judgment. There's no recompense. There's no vindication for victims. There's only an invitation for more widespread pain, suffering, and victimization. That's not justice. And so the first reason that God must pour out judgment is because he's a good and loving Judge, and that's exactly what John says in in verse 6, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets. You've given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. They've left victims in their wake. They've shed blood. You've given them blood to drink. It's what they deserve. But that encapsulates now the second reason that God is righteous to bring judgment according to John. First, he's a good and loving judge, but second, a good and just judge. But second, we are so deserving of that judgment. This statement, it is what they deserve, is followed by the altar saying in verse 7, set your eyes there with me, the altar says, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. So, so why would the altar speak about the justice of God and the bringing of judgment? Why would the altar come to bear witness? Well, the altar is where the blood must be spilled because it's the place over which God would meet with His people and it testifies that judgment must come. Blood must be spilled. God cannot be in the presence of wicked and mankind is thus so deserving. So God pours out judgment because He's a good and just judge. He, we are so deserving. And then finally, number three, God just gives people what they want. In the end... God just gives people what they want. That's what the text tells us. In other words, another way you could phrase this third reason, those who reject him do not want eternal life with him. They do not want to be in the presence of the Lamb singing songs forever. They don't want that. So listen, verses 8 and 9, the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched with fierce heat. Did they repent? What did they do? Did they turn to God? 
They say, we do not want this? No, what do they? They curse the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. Those who are met with judgment in the end would rather face that judgment. They'd rather bitterly, angrily face the judgment and repent and be in God's presence. As we've said before, they'd rather have the mountains fall upon them than to be in God's presence. And it's so easy, I think, to pivot to a form of universalism here and say like, well, if God was really just, he would just save everybody. But everybody doesn't want to be in his presence. They don't want that. It's torturous to their idea to be in the presence of the God the way that the scriptures reveal him for all eternity. It sounds like a a punishment. It sounds worse, right? So uh, in fact, they want anything but that. And when given the opportunity to repent repeatedly, even in the midst of God's patience with them, even in the midst of final judgment, they scoff at the notion. Verses 10 and 11 goes further, and it says that the fifth bull pours out God's judgment on the throne of the beast. The one who's actually enslaving mankind. That's the, that's the object of this fifth bowl of wrath. The one who's destroying mankind. The one who they serve to their peril. The one who, by serving and worshiping them, really eats them alive. And his kingdom is plunged into darkness. And how do they respond? Do they repent? No. People nod their tongues in anguish and curse the God of heaven. They did not repent of their deeds. And then when this unholy trinity of Satan, the beast, the false prophet, spew these gross and demonic things that in the text look like frogs, these false teachings, these demonic sayings from their mouths, those who face ultimate judgment despite the fact that, that uh, God's judgment is pouring out rather than repenting, they take up arms with them against God. They want to beat him up. Not only do they not want to be with him, they can't possibly think that they're going to be victorious. But they, they want to beat him up. They, they, they don't want anything to do with this God. Those who are judged in the end do not want to be in God's presence for all eternity. It's the last thing they want. And this is what C.S. Lewis means when he says that in the end, Christianity is the most just religion because it just gives you what you want. If you want him to be your Lord and Savior for all eternity, he gives you that. If you want to be your own Lord and Savior for all eternity, you want nothing to do with Him, He gives you that. If you'd rather face judgment, He gives you judgment. If in the end you won't repent because that's what you want over Him, that's what you get. C.S. Lewis writes this, he says, In the long run, the answer to those who reject God's judgment is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out past sins at all costs and give a fresh start? He did that on Calvary. To forgive them, but they don't ask for forgiveness. To leave them alone, that's what this is. There are only two kinds of people in the end, Lewis writes. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. And yet we can trust God's word. We can trust that he knows better than us. We can trust that when he brings judgment upon the earth that his judgments are right and good and just. Will not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Yes. Yes. We can trust. And the reason we can trust is that while these plagues point us back to the plagues of Egypt, right? While this picture of salvation and judgment side by side point us back to this time when God delivered his people, it also points us back to the means of deliverance. God spared his people through the blood of the Lamb. The Lamb plays a central role in Revelation. God spared his people in the Exodus through the blood of the Lamb. So for those who killed a spotless Lamb and put the blood of that Lamb upon the doorpost and then entered in under the blood of that Lamb, 
There was salvation in the midst of judgment. For those who ran out of the room denouncing God, who wanted nothing to do with him, judgment. But there was blood on the doorpost. And there was blood on the doorpost. Here's why. Because before any firstborn would die, before anyone would die in Egypt, before any firstborn would die, something else died. The lamb died first. The lamb had to die in order to save all of those who would come under his blood. And that points us to the lamb in Revelation. It points us to Jesus. It points us to the cross upon which Jesus faced this full and final wrath before anyone else would. So that we might not have to if we turn to Him and come under His blood. He died by way of God's judgment and wrath, these bulls, these punishments, before it's poured out on humanity. The Lamb died before anyone else that people might be saved by His blood. That they might turn to Him. And I think this ultimately discloses to us that if we're having a hard time with the judgment passages, that's okay. That's okay. But at the center of the way we approach this, our focus needs to be on the cross. Because here you see where God's judgment was poured out in full force that those who trust in Him might have life forever. We need to trust that God knows better than we do. That He made a way for our hearts to be changed so that we could follow Him. None of us could possibly desire eternity with God apart from a complete trust in the person of Christ. A complete trust in Him. That's what it all comes down to. It comes down to the person of Jesus. Tonight we're going to talk about how, the per- again, uh, I invite you, Article 4 from our EFCA Statement of Faith. Why is Jesus uniquely qualified to be man's Redeemer? It comes down to the person of Jesus. Do you trust Him? He went to the cross for you. Do you trust Him? He bled and died for you. Do you trust Him? He faced God's wrath for you. Do you trust Him? Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? We can say yes because of the cross. And so now, Lord, as we come to the table, help us. Give us faith. Give us faith to trust You over ourselves. Give us faith to trust You over what we think is us knowing better. Help us to trust your word over our word and help us by pointing us to the reality of your body broken, your blood shed as we turn to the table in Jesus' name. Amen.